Four days after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, on February 28, 2022, members of the Conti Ransomware Group began leaking information about their own internal operations. Conti, with its strong ties to Russia, had come out in support of Russia. However, the rank and file of Conti were based in Ukraine and had a different opinion. One of them decided to speak up against Conti and in favor of Ukraine. That person formed a Twitter account named Conte Leaks. The account owner wrote, quote, My comments are coming from the bottom of my heart, which is breaking over my dear Ukraine and my people. Looking at what is happening to it breaks my heart, and sometimes my heart wants to scream. Unquote. Over the next few weeks, chats from encrypted communications were leaked, and it became clear that Conti was a large and otherwise well-functioning criminal organization. It had its own recruiters, HR, finance, and in addition to engineers, there was even a full team of customer support members. Checkpoint Software, in a report on Conti, found that the organization had salaried workers, some of whom were paid in Bitcoin, plus performance reviews and training opportunities. There were also negotiators who received commissions on paid ransoms. There were employee referral programs with bonuses given to employees who've recruited others and an Employee of the Month Club, which earned the employee a bonus equal to half their salary. Conte appeared to be structured like any other tech company, but unlike most tech companies, Conte also had a program that fined its underperformers, punishing them for coming in below expectations. Perhaps the most interesting fact revealed was the source code itself that was leaked, allowing security companies to create their own decryption services for anyone who had become infected with the Conte ransomware. All in all, the Conte leak ripped a veil, often mysterious process involved in ransomware creation and its operation. Information that would be useful to a ransom negotiator, like the one I'll introduce you to in a moment. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm going to talk with a ransomware negotiator I ran into in the hallways at this year's RSA conference in San Francisco. We talk a lot about ransomware as an attack, but what is it like to be on the inside during that situation? In a moment, we'll find out. Maybe you've seen in the TV or movies or in a book, a negotiator who's called in when there's a ransom to be paid. Maybe there's a hostage being taken. Maybe there's data being taken. Same difference. You need the skills to negotiate. Here's somebody who actually does this. Uh, my name is Mark Lance. I'm uh, the VP of DFIR and Threat Intelligence for GuidePoint Security. So GuidePoint provides uh, security consulting services to our clients. Um, I'm responsible for all 
reactive incident response, proactive threat discovery, IR retainers, uh, IR advisory services such as tabletops, purple team exercises, playbook development, IR plan development, uh, as well as threat intelligence services including maturity assessments um, and you know threat intelligence as a service portfolio. Perhaps it's best to set the stage by talking about the current threat landscape. Are ransomware attacks getting worse? Getting better? Or are they saying roughly the same? So within the last year, uh, within 2022, we did see a reduction in the amount of it, ransomware that we were seeing. Um, whether that was attributed to the Russia-Ukraine conflict or other things, we can only hypothesize. The And again, just speaking with peers amongst the industry, uh, whether it was for you know reactive incident response or whether it's you know cyber insurance carriers, they were seeing less claims year over year as well. Um, by no means does that mean that there was no ransomware occurring. It was still very active within the last year, just not at the volumes that we were seeing in previous years. Um, now that being said, in 2023, specifically in Q1, we've seen a substantial increase, um, specifically in Q1, where it is resuming back to pre-2022 uh, volume. So within Q1 alone, we've already seen over a 25% increase in the amount of ransomware uh, that we've seen. That's the volume of incident uh, of incidents, uh, publications that we're seeing, inbound requests for, you know, assistance responding to an incident, uh, you know, negotiations requests, uh, those types of activities. And do these percentages do they distinguish between criminal and nation state attacks? We do. So we we categorize threats into multiple different groups, um, typically by their motivations. Um, nation state in APT are generally going to be more motivated by information and uh, criminal groups are typically going to be monetarily motivated and so with ransomware we would put it in the criminal category um, we track over 30 different ransomware groups um, their associated name and shame sites and when there are publications to those sites what the associated verticals are to those clients who've been published and you know track all of those accordingly from an open source perspective but also you know, responding to incidents for them as well. We hear a lot about commercial targets being attacked, but there are also non-commercial infrastructure targets of ransomware as well, such as the Colonial Pipeline. Um, I think, again, when we're talking about c cyber criminals and, and criminal threat groups, their motivations are monetarily driven. Um, I think where you start talking about more disruptive and specifically intent to be disruptive, you're generally going to see that from hacktivist groups who are maybe trying to push an agenda based on political beliefs or religious beliefs or anything else, where maybe they would want to have a desire to shut down an organization to, you know, show their, their you know, against whatever their message is. Um, similarly, you might see nation states who would perform more disruptive attacks where they're actually looking at you know bringing down infrastructure versus criminal organizations where at the end of the day their primary driver is monetizing their efforts and making money so i think in most circumstances criminal groups are are after making money versus just strictly being disruptive what are some other types of targets that mark has seen so Different criminal organizations like to target different types of organizations themselves or victims. Um, we know that there are 
some groups that, you know, do what would be considered maybe whale hunting, they're going to go after the larger targets and, and larger payments. Then you've got some of your smaller groups who are just looking for volume. Um, we know that, you know, manufacturing is an area that we've seen a lot of targets over the last quarter. Um, again, because if you bring down manufacturing operations, there's a high impact to the business and necessity to recover quickly. So we, again, with certain criminal organizations and in groups that we track, uh, some of them we know will target certain industries and they will say, well, healthcare is an example. Had they have a necessity to recover quickly because without operations in healthcare, it could lead to loss of life. It could lead to major complications, and so they'll specifically target threat healthcare. But then you've got others who have, you know, their their ethical obligations according to them, where they specifically won't target um, healthcare. Or you know, during COVID nineteen, we saw where they wouldn't target, you know, companies that were working on vaccines. Um, but again, then you've got the other ones who see that as an opportunity and another switch to flip or a lever to pull so that they can get paid, which at the end of the day, that's their primary motivation. So we do see where it is, you know, it is really dependent upon the criminal organization as to who they typically like to target. This isn't how ransomware has always been. Early on, it targeted individual personal computers. So within the last couple of years, what we saw is just continued evolution of ransomware as a threat. Um, initially, it was, well, if you, depending on how far back you go, uh, you know, initially it was more opportunistic, targeting individuals, then they transitioned over to organizations realizing that they're generally going to have more money. Um, you can hit one organization versus a thousand people and make the same amount. Um, and the continued evolution of the threat you know, over the years was, initially it was about operational impacts and you know, causing operational impacts in an environment, which would then hopefully result in a ransom payment in order to get decryption keys or tools um, that would allow you to restore and recover your environment. Obviously, organizations got smart to that and they started doing offline backups, securing their backups differently um, so that they would continue to have access and availability. And so that's when, you know, threat actors within the last couple of years transitioned into the double extortion model, which is where prior to actually performing the encryption event, they're going to find what they believe to be sensitive information and steal that data from the environment. And so... A lot of times once the encryption occurs, that's really the final stage of the of the incident. Um, they've already gotten into the environment. They've, you know, established persistence, uh, multiple ways to get back into the environment. They found what they believe to be sensitive data, stolen that data, and then they perform the encryption event. And then ideally from their perspective, um, if the operational impacts aren't enough to justify a potential ransom payment, then extorting you for release of that data is something else that they try to leverage in order to, to get that ransom payment. And so what you can expect is that once you see the ransom note, um, if you don't establish contact with them, they're eventually going to publish the name of your organization on their name and shame site. And then after that initial publication, they will start leaking that data and releasing that data um, for people to, to download um, if, if the ransom payment isn't made. So let's say you're at an organization and you find out that you have a ransomware attack. You find out by a screen 
that comes up that says your data has been encrypted. What's the first step? Step one is freak out. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so the, you know, what the, the most common way that people realize that they have been impacted by ransomware, to your point, is that they find a ransom note. And within that ransom note, it will have a link to a Tor site, um, you know, a lot of times a specific key or a unique site that you go to, which essentially notifies the threat actor that you're aware that it's occurred and it's initiating the conversations um, and, and essentially the negotiations. There are other instances where emails are sent. We had uh, one instance recently where they were emailing from an internal account um, to members of the, of the senior leadership team for that organization and saying, hey, we've stolen data from your environment. You need to make a ransom payment. Go here and do this so that we can initiate communications. Um, but generally, most of the interactivity between the threat actor and the client or somebody like ourselves who are going to be performing the, the threat actor communications and negotiations are, is going to be through some sort of chat portal or platform that they're using. So that's interesting. I would think that the communication would be encrypted. I would think that the ransomware operators would want to use something like Telegram or Signal. So we have had a couple threat actors that have used Telegram, um, but in most instances, there is some sort of uh, channel or chat capability within the platform that they're using. Um, it, <laughs> there, it, historically, uh, one of the one of the groups that we got a lot of insight and visibility into was Conti. Um, because during the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, they initially came out and they said, um, you know, we support Russia, but then a lot of the, you know, people who worked for the organization were in the Ukraine, and so they started leaking information, SOPs, Bitcoin wallets. And so we got visibility into a lot of the capabilities and platform that they use. And so you can see where they've got very established work queues. I've seen, you know, better service desk capabilities in some of these criminal platforms than you would actually see working for an organization, where you can see, you know, the specific, you know, client or, or victim that they're working with, and then the details about the specific uh, victim as well. Like, this many servers were impacted and encrypted, this many workstations, here's how much data we stole, here's what type it is, and then have that full kind of chat capability built into the platform where they can, you know, monitor and see the current state of uh, the, the communications, and, and they've got the full, you know, uh, history there to, to interact with the victim. Another variation, sometimes the ransomware operators, they just don't offload the data. They're just there to extort. So one of the things that we've actually seen is even uh, recently, we've had multiple clients that the encryption never even occurred. They're just stealing the data. Specifically with NQ1, we've had multiple incidents where they did not do any encryption, and yet, pardon me, uh, they did not do any encryption and yet they perform the data exfiltration and attempted extortion um, through, the, through the data they've taken. Now, again, we have to hypothesize sometimes on why they potentially didn't do that. We have you know, one circumstance where they ran into what appeared to be challenges trying to get the ransomware binaries, binaries to execute. Um, other instances, 
you know, they're so, uh, they're so nice. They've said things like, we could have encrypted your environment, but we did you the favor of not doing that. Um, and instead, we're only going to extort you for uh, the information that we stole. So uh, that is something we've seen, again, across multiple clients within the last three months where that encryption event never occurs and they're working strictly off of the stolen data and attempted ransom payment through that. So there's another variation to the ransomware attack, which is they only encrypt the first eight bytes of the data, kind of a smash and grab. So the method of quick encryption that used to occur previously, I think was for uh, ability to expedite the encryption process and, and make it occur as quickly as possible with, with, but again, causing as much operational impact as possible. So sometimes when you are you know, you don't need to encrypt everything. You could just encrypt the first portion of it to basically corrupt uh, the files and information that you have. And so it is it just a more effective and efficient way to damage an environment without having to, you know, take a long time for that to be deployed or, or implemented. Bottom line, though, should you pay? I think that there's always going to be reasons that clients would justify needing to make a ransom payment. Um, a lot of times it could be that they don't have available backups and they aren't able to recover operations um, without the assistance to, you know, of, of a decryption tool. Other times we've got clients, we've got clients that have, we've got clients that have experienced the encryption event and it's on specific systems that they find critical and without access to that information or those systems they're not able to continue to operate uh, so in those circumstances they've said hey we need to pursue a decryption uh, capability because we have to get access to that to that information or that system or else we're going to have to shut our business um, other times we've got clients who consider it because they want to they want to perform the disclosure on their timelines versus the threat actors timelines. So they will actually pay the ransom in order to not have it publicly released, work with counsel on what their internal and external notifications and disclosure requirements are and do it on their own timeline versus having it published to the threat actor website beforehand. So a lot of different reasons that clients would potentially make a, a ransom payment. And I think ideally, if you have the opportunity and don't need to fund a criminal organization through a ransom payment, I think most people would like to avoid that. But I think that there's, you know, again, there's always going to be reasons or justification and, and instances where clients will have to make a payment. The other thing to consider is there's a lot of preparatory work that goes into a ransomware attack. The data, it gets encrypted and exfiltrated before you actually see the notice on your screen. Absolutely. So when we're talking about these criminal organizations, there's a level of sophistication that a lot of people don't realize that they have. Um, they have financial analysts who will go out there and they will review organizational information. Um, they'll look at the market cap, they'll look at stock prices, they'll look at the size of the organization. They also then evaluate the information that they've taken from an environment. Um, and then they will tie that into what they believe the ransom amount should be. Um, so I think there's sometimes some preliminary work from 
ransomware actors who do more targeted operations um, at specific organizations, but then even once they get in, um, they're they're leveraging what information they have and access and, and details they have to make a determination on what that ransom payment should be. So you're at an organization, and it's definitely been hit with ransomware. At what point do you need to bring in someone like Mark? So when an incident occurs, one of the first things that you should do is if you have somebody on retainer, or if you've got um, you know, an incident response service provider that you like to use, contacting them. Uh, in addition to that, uh, the other people you should be contacting almost immediately is external counsel. Uh, so that they can provide you with recommendations based on the output of it, some sort of incident response investigation. So the sooner we get a call from clients, the better, because we can provide them with recommendations on how to, one, contain the threat, and then the steps that you know should be taken um, trying to balance restoring operations with not damaging forensics and uh, you know ruining any sort of potential artifacts that are available within the environment. So pardon me, the sooner they can get a hold of us, the better because we can provide directions on, you know, yes, you could start rebuilding these systems. You need to start limiting access here. You need to perform these types of activities in parallel to retaining this information so that we can figure out how they got in, potentially identify what information was touched and accessed, what all their persistence mechanisms and backdoors are. Um, so the earlier, the better. A lot of organizations have started taking out insurance against ransomware attacks. Does Mark typically work with insurance companies? We do. We work closely with insurance. We work closely with external counsel. When we're working an incident response effort, whether that's performing the incident response investigation and forensics, or whether that is to actually perform the uh, negotiations, a majority of time, we will actually be working for counsel on behalf of the client. So you'll do a three-party SOW where Again, we're working for counsel on behalf of the client, trying to maintain as much uh, privilege as possible in case there's any sort of litigation. And then there are examples where the ransomware operators, they're really not interested in the payment. I know that sounds crazy, but we had that example with NotPetya. Nobody claimed the Bitcoins that were being submitted. And for that matter, the people who submitted the Bitcoins, they didn't necessarily get the decryption key. So clearly payment wasn't the point of that particular attack. I think there are, we have awareness to certain cases where the ransomware is being performed or the encryption is being performed um, as a diversion to some sort of targeted attack. Um, that's in a lot of circumstances going to be more of your nation states uh, and APT related you know, threats. And it's going to be where maybe they're performing the encryption in order to make it look like it's some sort of criminal activity, when in reality, the true motivation was to get in there and steal data. We also have to make a lot of kind of guesses or, or try to determine what motivations are because you know, we're the ones investigating. We're the ones trying to understand you know, what the motivations are and why things occurred, but really only the people on the other side know that uh, unless they you know, specifically tell you otherwise. But yeah, to your to your point, I think there are instances where the negotiations or the whole ransom piece of it 
don't seem as legitimate and you can almost tell that maybe that it wouldn't be the primary motivator um, because they're not as driven by actually getting the ransom payment or potentially even negotiating um, in order to make sure they are going to make some sort of money versus, you know, those where in most circumstances, when it's a criminal organization and they've performed some sort of ransomware operations in a client environment, if they know that there's the opportunity to make money, again, they're driven monetarily. So they're going to do whatever they can to make some sort of money um, off, of the, off of the operations and the level of effort that occurred. So as long as they know that they're going to make something, they're not generally going to walk away. So in terms of payment, what is typically the method that's being used today? Bitcoin. Still using Bitcoin. Bitcoin. I would think that they would want to use something, say, a little off-brand, maybe like Ethereum or Monero. Nope. Uh, pure Bitcoin is generally the, the way that we are still seeing or we're, you know, we work with brokerage firms that actually assist with making the ransom payments. And Bitcoin is still the uh, method of payment that we're seeing across almost all of our engagements. We have had other, we have had a, a couple instances where they will request to use some other alternative means, but in most circumstances, it's always uh, Bitcoin. So once an organization's paid the Bitcoin, it's immediately tumbled and mixed into something else, and therefore the blockchain becomes well less obvious to track. I think, uh, I mean, it's 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 a, a viable solution that is easily anonymized through you know different wallets and everything else um you can very easily determine you know what the current price of bitcoin is and adjust your ransom amount based on the current price of bitcoin as well as in a lot of circumstances it's easier for clients to retrieve or uh, procure bitcoin than it is other um, types of cryptocurrency we, we try to, you know, obviously there, we have to track certain Bitcoin wallets for OFAC sanctions and purposes of, um, you know, inability to pay certain types of threat actors based on the uh, directives that have been provided by the Department of the Treasury. So we do track various Bitcoin wallets associated with certain groups and can't make payments to those groups. But to your point, I mean, you can, once a payment is received, it's going to be pushed through multiple wallets, distributed across multiple wallets um, to try to, you know, prevent the ability to, to really determine who it is. In some cases, the ransom that's demanded is in millions of dollars. How do organizations that choose to pay get that much Bitcoin on such short notice? So generally, it's not about an inability to get the amount of Bitcoin. It's more about their inability to fund the, the Bitcoin itself. Um, so we haven't run into challenges where they can't actually procure the Bitcoin. We're, if an organization, and this is not something I would recommend, if an organization is trying to do this themselves, but don't have the experience, then, to, then it might be tough to try to procure the actual Bitcoin itself in the volumes that you need in a timely manner that you expect. That's why you would use a, you know, a brokerage firm that can actually assist with, you know, not only procuring the amount of Bitcoin, sending it over, doing the appropriate OFAC sanctions checks, uh, and, and the due diligence that would be expected with making that sort of large payment. Otherwise, you could make a single mistake if you're not familiar with this kind of thing. And next thing you know, you, you paid the wrong person or it's, it's much harder to try to get your money back. So. 
As ransomware cases grow in number, there's more and more work for negotiators like Mark. Certainly, the criminal organizations are aware of people like Mark. But in general, how do they feel about working with a negotiator? Threat actors do not want you using negotiators. They, uh, they would prefer to leverage the inexperience and the lack of familiarity um, than work with somebody who has worked with all of the different threat actors and has the experience negotiating and knows all of these things. So in a lot of circumstances, threat actors have even said, if you work with a negotiations firm, we're going to go ahead and publish your information. They've uh, even named certain firms, but it, it would be their preference, and they, they commonly uh, don't want you using negotiators. Um, and they've even, you know, some of the groups have even said that, uh, that if you use negotiators, it's going to void any sort of potential to, to make the ransom payment. Ah, so there's a bit of subterfuge necessary. Mark and his teams have to act as though they are part of the victim organization. We always are taking on a persona of the client. Uh, we're working for beha on, on behalf of the client. We're never referencing the fact that we are a negotiator that has been hired by the client. Now, there's always the potential that, you know, and we're taking precautionary me measures and, you know, performing our due diligence to make sure that they don't recognize that. Um, but, you know, there's always the potential that they have access to email and could see email communications. That's why we take steps to use encrypted email or, you know, other channels for communication if the threat actor is doing any sort of monitoring. But we never disclose that we are a, a negotiator versus working for the client directly. As one would suspect, each negotiation is unique. So Mark and his team, they have to be agile. They have to respond in the moment. So when you go to perform a negotiation, there's multiple motivations behind initiating communications with the threat actor. Um, there's value in communicating with a threat actor, regardless of whether there's any intent to make a ransom payment. Um, and that's one of the things we do is we work with clients beforehand to establish a strategy based on what their desired outcome is. Is there a need to make a ransom payment and get decryption tools? Uh, if so, how quickly do they want to do that? Is there time to attempt to, ne to negotiate down? But part of the other things we need to do is we need to get, you know, proof of life or proof of decryption. So we want to ensure that if the ransom payment is made, that they actually are going to be able to decrypt the files. We also want to uh, do things like try to get file trees from them, um, trying to get confirmation on what they have stolen that they believe is so sensitive. And then that can be turned over to external counsel and turned over to your forensics work stream because your forensics team now knows what systems to go look at based on where the location of that data was. And a lot of those systems might be encrypted, so we didn't have forensics artifacts to determine that. Um, alternatively, it helps you know external counsel to you know say, this is the type of information that was potentially stolen and might need to, to be disclosed. Um, and can adjust the kind of disclosure requirements from there. So there's a ton of value in initiating those conversations to feed your forensics work stream, to feed external counsel, regardless of whether there's an intent to actually make payment. Another one of the primary reasons we do that with clients is it allows them to delay so that we can you know, continue to perform the forensics investigation, ensure that we have identified how they got in, where the back doors are located, and then, again, allows them to actually prepare and ensure that they're not going to continue to be impacted, but also due to disclosure on their own terms versus it being published to a name and shame, shame, name and shame site. 
So there's a lot of different, you know, justifications and reasons for engaging with, for, with them, regardless of actually making a payment. All this makes me wonder what type of skills are necessary to be a ransomware negotiator. I think similar to, you know, any other type of job or role, you're looking for specific types of skills from your resources that are performing these types of activities. Um, one of the things that, that we are very specific about is approaching things logically and very strategically. Um, obviously, when you have a major incident, it can be very emotional because you might be angry, you might be upset and sad that this has occurred, worrying about your job. Um, there's a lot of different emotions that go along with incident response. And so what we do is we come in, and I don't, again, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not quite sure, we do this daily. So we, we have the experience of educating the client on what to truly expect and what the impacts of certain actions could be, what um, certain considerations are, and things that they should be doing. So one, we're there to be informative, and so you've got to be able to communicate and be informative to clients, but then you've also got to help them establish a strategy. Like, you might not know immediately, based on our questions, what you want to do. You might need more time to validate the, the uh, the ability to recover from backups. You might you know, need more time to determine if a ransom payment is even optional um, and to speak with your senior leadership. So you might not all know all those questions up front, but we can establish what the strategy initially is and then adjust that based on what the client's requirements are. And I think that's, that's really what's necessary is the ability to communicate effectively, establish expectations, um, work very closely and collaboratively with clients, establish a strategy, stick to that strategy, and then it's, it's really just kind of ability to effectively communicate. Um, so, I mean, we've obviously studied and, and have you know, gotten background about different types of negotiation tactics and skills. Uh, but, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to the strategy and, and what the motivation is. And then we can approach the threat actor in our communications accordingly. And I further wonder if somebody outside the typical computer science fields could transition into something like this. A lot of the members of our team come from various types of backgrounds. Uh, we've got a ton of people who have experience in law enforcement, others with military backgrounds, others um, who have been IT administrators. And those, I would say, tend to be some of the more common backgrounds of people or people who have gotten general IT experience, understand maybe how networks work, um, understanding how things communicate online. Uh, a lot of people with administrative backgrounds, um, from network administrators to you know IT resources that have then made the transition into more of a cybersecurity focus. Of course, if you're going to talk to a ransomware negotiator, there's got to be some stories there, given the nature of his work. Oh man, I've got all sorts of crazy stories. So I asked Mark to think about a story that stood out. Um, so for me, we do obviously a lot of criminal work. I think where it gets extremely interesting is on the nation state and APT side. Um, I would say one of the more interesting things that we ever saw is we had a client that we were working with and 
they said they had an unhackable solution, which is obviously never the case. Um, so that's a bad starting point for them. Um, but we go into work with this client and the reason that they engaged us was they were seeing inbound authentication successful to their environment for remote users, but it was on-demand authentication. And so they weren't seeing where the outbound authentication codes were being issued or even the inbound requests for those authentication codes. So right there, this seems to be some sort of authentication bypass. Well, how would that work? So typically it would go request an authentication code, client then sends that back over to the user uh, with the authentication code, then they use that to authenticate. Those two first steps were missing. So we're only seeing successful inbound authentication. And they're like, we don't know why. This is where Mark's team put on their investigation hat and drilled into the network itself, looking for any reason why this would be. Come to find out through our research, through our investigation, they've gotten in through a partner, um, through a, you know, a trust and a, and a partner a relationship that Threat Actor had. They had identified a backup of the remote access server, exfiltrated that, and we assume stood it up in a lab somewhere and started just issuing their own authentic authentication codes and able to successfully access the customer environment. And once they're in, I mean, gen typical to any other type of threat, once you're in and you have access, you leverage the tools that are available in the access as long as you've got you know, privileged credentials and, and continue to try to fly under the radar as much as possible. There's a site that has best practices for organizations that have been hit with ransomware. Obviously, the best situation is not to be in that situation. I asked Mark if he had any other key takeaways for organizations in general. By focusing on the basics, it, it reduces your exposure to a larger set of risks. There's you know, a lot of threat actors out there that if they see things like, oh, multi-factor authentication is enabled, or if they're not able to easily fish you, they're just going to move on to the next target that is, you know, uh, going to be easier to get into the environment. So focusing on those basics it can help prevent you from being impacted by some of the, the more opportunistic threats. And, and really just you know, limit your potential exposure to risk. So focus on the basics, MFA, privilege access management, um, have you know, some sort of endpoint solution, but then also have people looking at things. I can't tell you the amount of clients that we work with that have every solution known to man and capabilities, but nobody's paying attention. And so you know, either they're impacted by ransomware or there's a threat actor that's been present in their environment for two and a half years. So really I'd just say focus on the basics is, is my key thing for, for clients to, to help try to prevent some of the more generic threats or commodity-based threats. So that's interesting. There are organizations out there that maybe have all the latest endpoint security solutions and it becomes a tower of Babel. They're just getting like tons of data but not really analyzing it. No synthesis of what it is. It's, it's, we've had multiple incidents, even recently we worked where clients have appropriate visibility, but they don't have people who maybe have the right skill set, And so they will mark them things as false positive. Um, or the visibility that they have 
hasn't been appropriately configured and set up. So they're not seeing the things that they should. So it's a wide variety of things from, you know, having the appropriate visibility, having the right people in place and the processes. But if you're going to invest in all these tools and solutions and resources, make sure that they're actually using things and, and, and taking a look at them. I'd really like to thank Mark Lance for sharing his insights into the world of ransomware negotiation. It's interesting to see how this has moved from ransoming a personal desktop to ransoming large organizations and even parts of the infrastructure. Clearly, criminal hackers, they're in it for the money, and they're lazy about how to get it. So I kind of suspect that in a, in a few years, they'll, they'll move on to something else. But for the meantime, there are people like Mark who can help organizations navigate their incident response in a ransomware attack. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. The Hacker Mine is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I'm Robert Famosi. <laughs> <laughs>